thinking of like a Venn diagram is probably a good way. It's like, you know, Amy and our studio overlap in a certain area, but like the center of our circles are probably still relatively far apart. And it helps us develop a holistic look at it because, you know, Amy's looking at the products and materials and systems we're using in the whole entire building. Whereas, you know, we're usually focused on the structure and the facade. And, you know, there's all these different overlaps of how the details are coming together, the constructability, who we're going to buy it from, the fabrication, how to specify it, how to tie it to all these other systems to create this holistic thing that is a building. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, very excited to be joined by these two guests, Amy Baker and Chris O'Hara. A little bit of a quick blurb on both of them. Amy is an architect and specifications consultant at Amy Baker Architect, a commercial architecture and spec consulting firm located in Royal Oak, Michigan. Amy's on the board of directors for the, for the Metro Detroit chapter of the Building Enclosure Council and was recently nominated and voted onto the board of directors for the Air Barrier Association of America. Chris O'Hara is founding principal and facade director at Studio NYL, a Boulder, Colorado-based structural engineering and facade design firm known for its exemplary projects and skills. They've delivered some amazing products around the world that involve resolving for some pretty complex geometry and enclosure systems. Special thanks to Christine Williamson, special shout out to Building Science Fight Club for the introduction to Amy. With that, thank you both for joining me. Thank you. This is uh, really exciting. I've never done a live webcast like this before. So I'm both excited and nervous and uh, I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having us. It'll be fun. Cool. So to start, I love to just uh, for, for the listeners, get a little bit of the highlights of your own careers and what got you to where you are today. So maybe Amy, you can kind of kick it off for us. Sure. Yeah. So from the very beginning, uh, when I started working in this profession, I was always working on spec-related tasks alongside my architectural tasks. That kind of fear factor that I think a lot of architects have about spec writing was kind of eliminated because I've always been exposed to it, right? So it's a more comfortable place for me to kind of live. At a certain point, I realized that I actually liked writing specs and started to volunteer within the larger firms I was working to write specs for my coworkers on their projects. But for the most part, I have always written my own specs on projects where I am the architect. So it kind of grew in that way within kind of the large firm setting. Um, and it occurred to me a few years ago that I liked it so much that I wanted to go on my own and offer it as a consulting service to various firms. Because to be totally honest, I don't think a lot of architects really enjoy writing specs. And I think, like I said, there's a fear factor kind of associated with it because it's sort of like this unknown awfulness that people are just nervous to kind of tackle. So it's been a really busy and fun time for me to be able to kind of pop in and meet a whole bunch of different architects from different places and support them in their spec writing efforts. Well, I'm Chris O'Hara. I'm originally from New York and started my career there, initially out in the field, uh, learning the realities of construction, and then uh, moved on to design firms, the first of which kind of exposed me to rather abnormal structures. 
everything from amusement park rides to touring with the Rolling Stones, designing their stage, structural glass, in addition to conventional buildings. And as a result, I have a tendency to look at things from um, a very base principles, common sense perspective of how things to go together, no matter how complex. And from there, I moved to um, start the uh, New York office for a British firm called Doris McFarland, which was the firm that invented the uh, Apple staircase technologies and did a lot of the early work for Apple before that moved on. And then um, working with architects uh, like Rafael Vignoli, Studio Gang, everything from small houses to convention centers. Then eventually I chose to move to Colorado for lifestyle and eventually started uh, my own instructional engineering practice with my partner, Julian Lynham. So I'm the NY of Studio NYL and he's the L, he's from London. We started doing dynamic structures here with the idea of trying to raise a level of design in Colorado with our world experience. And uh, eventually that kind of evolved to the point where we're doing more work out of Colorado than we are in Colorado now. We also developed a facade division, which was a direct result of people telling me we couldn't do things. Whereas uh, when I used to design glass in New York before we were responsible with the thermal envelope and air barriers and things that are rather critical to the envelope, it was all about structural gymnastics and how transparent we can make things. And everything was just a barrier system. As we started becoming more responsible, people would tell me we couldn't do things. And I really don't like being told no. So I went out and brought in experts, people with backgrounds in building science, architects, fabrication experts. And we created um, almost like a little bit of a think tank where a number of people with different backgrounds all come together to uh, solve our problems so we can be enablers to our architectural clients and help them achieve their visions. And that's really the whole goal of uh, Studio NYL, whether it be structure or facade. That's a great description. Thanks for both of you sharing uh, your backgrounds. I'd like to start off maybe talking a little bit about the life cycle of a project in general. Last week, for context, we had a great conversation with a, with a general contractor, Nick Schiffer from Manus Builders. And we talked a lot about the importance of bringing people on early on to a project, especially to get more clarity around design, right? And from his perspective, a lot of it had to do with cost estimation. I'm just understanding, can it be done? What are the current prices? You know, lumber right now is out of control. And so just giving more reality to uh, a design project has beneficial outcomes for everyone. I'm curious from both of your different perspectives, you slot in at different parts of the project, potentially, maybe some sooner, some later. I'm curious, what have you seen to be the most effective projects from a delivery perspective you worked on? What common traits did they share? When were you brought on to a project? Or maybe maybe if you brought, if you have experiences bringing other people onto a project, what did that look like? Maybe, Amy, maybe you can help us there. Sure. So I think the short answer is that this varies per firm and per project. But in general, I would say like for a larger, maybe more complicated project, especially where there's maybe a lot of custom things that we're looking at for the enclosure, I'm typically engaged sometime during the SD phase just to kind of be available. There might be an actual spec deliverable when people issue the SD set for a project that's bigger and more complicated. But certainly it's just to kind of like have a heads up as to what's going on. And, you know, if there are questions that pop up, even as early as SD about like major building material selections, I'm available to kind of answer those questions. A lot of times I'm engaged at the end of SD. And sometimes that means that we're sort of carrying forward through design development. And my end deliverable would be like an outline spec, right? So during that phase, 
it's really helpful, I think, when the architecture firms I'm working with have somebody that's on board and like ready to ask all these questions. Like, have you thought about the air barrier? Have you thought about your waterproofing? Have you thought about your roofing? And just kind of like bringing some of those big decisions forward, because maybe at that point, they're really just thinking about the cladding material. So I think having another voice or partner in the process helps kind of capture all of these big ideas that really should be made, decisions that should be made maybe as soon as DD starts, right? We should be thinking about these things because they all are interrelated and interconnected. And I think that that's the value in bringing in a spec writer or an enclosure consultant a little bit sooner in the process. But that said, there's a lot of examples where I'm brought in and maybe the drawings are developed to kind of like a 50% CD level. And it's like, okay, we just need this final spec and then we'll send it out for permit and bid and we'll move on with the project. And that happens all the time too. So usually in that circumstance though, there's a lot of like frantic scurrying that occurs because some of these like major decisions were maybe not made by the 50% CD mark. And then it's sort of like overwhelming to have that first call with me or a consultant like me where like I have all of these questions and some of those things are not decided and the homework list is quite big at that point. So it just depends. Not every project can support full spec writing throughout, but a lot of them can. And I think that that's kind of an important thing to remember too, is that it doesn't have to be a certain way and it doesn't have to be a service that's provided only for a certain type of firm. Like all of these services that either Chris or I would provide are definitely scalable, even for smaller projects or smaller firms. Yeah, I think that's really helpful for people that are listening about when, you know, especially folks that might have trepidations about bringing in, yeah, thinking that somehow somehow out of reach is really important for them to know that it's not. For, I almost want to flip the question, maybe in reverse in a sense, what have you seen has been the commonalities or like the, the makeup of teams where they bring you much later into the process? And maybe what I'm trying to get to is, do you find that there's some sort of pattern that you've picked up on already in terms of like what either from a project management perspective or from a team makeup perspective, maybe they already have their own in-house spec writer. And so they're trying to use you more for uh, as an additional resource. Yeah. Cause I'm curious, like, Maybe we can sort of uh, diagnose the problem in a way of like the the challenges that come up at that point. So on my end, I kind of approach spec writing as kind of like an interviewing process, right? I have a lot of questions and I'm interested in kind of talking through everybody's comfort zone. If you know you like certain materials or systems, let's talk about those first. Uh, But I'm also going to ask a bunch of questions about things you're maybe not quite as familiar about. Um, So... I think when things get sticky, we'll call it, with the various architects that I'm working with, it's usually because maybe I haven't really participated in the entire process and I'm brought in at a later time. And the project is big and complex enough to have a lot of open items. So it's not really something that's going wrong like for me, I'm still just asking questions, right? But I think what it ends up doing is it causes a lot of stress on the part of the architect because then they realize after that call how much information still needs to be decided. So what I I never want to do is 
to hang up with the architects that I'm working with and have them freak out and have a panic attack. You know, everybody's process is a little bit different and I'm kind of interested in making it as not stressful as possible. And, you know, at the end of the day, we'll get through it, but it's a process, right? So we have to stay on top of it and I'm going to have a lot of questions. Yeah, Chris, I'm curious on your end, you know, what would have been the most successful projects? What have they looked like organizationally? And when have you been brought in versus, let's say, the opposite of that, right? Like the more challenging projects. When were you involved in that process? And also, are there things about just how architects organize themselves or how they organize a process that led to suboptimal outcomes in a project? Well, the most successful are the ones where we're brought in as early as possible. Some of our best collaborations have been with people we've been working with for years and ideas that weren't appropriate to a project a decade ago are suddenly the right idea for this project because it's different. For us to be involved early and understand as much about the project as possible, you know, there are a lot of architects we'll work with where they're like, oh, well, we want to protect their fee. We won't bring them in until we get our ideas together. And that's the exact opposite of what we should do. The more I understand why the design evolves the way they want it to be and how they got where they are before compromises, the better work I can do. Because oftentimes subtle moves, subtle adjustments or change in material, change in system can get us closer to the initial vision than the compromises permit them to be. So by coming in too late, just kind of getting this narrow glimpse of a project isn't what we want. We often tell them, like, you cannot overwhelm us with information. Give us as much as you've got so that way we know why we got here. And then at the same time, we've got to be keeping that conversation, communication loop going of when we give them options, and there are always many, many options, is you know, why these options are the ones we're giving. What are the, the rules that started to govern these things? And the more they understand why on the technical aspects or why something is more expensive than another, the better we can start bending these rules to get to the most appropriate design for a project, whether that parameter is based on just pure aesthetics, sometimes it's based on thermal performance, sometimes it's based purely on cost. And all of these things can be balanced as long as we know the information going in. And that's kind of the name of the game, I think, for what we do as consultants. We want to be helpful, right? So the worst thing for either of us would be to like provide way too much information for anyone to digest and kind of like a single setting and have them feel completely overwhelmed and paralyzed by it. So we are interested in keeping the process moving forward, obviously, but we also don't want to overwhelm people with information because that could very easily occur if we have too many things floating in the air. So that's just a process that we probably manage in similar ways, even though we're providing separate and different consulting services. Yeah. And really thinking of us as a different silo is is the wrong way to think about it. It's like, we should be an extension of the architect studio. It's like, whereas the, the massive firms, the SOMs, the Genslers, you know, they can have entire departments of technical people that service all their different uh, projects. Whereas that's the role that we're able to provide for people, whether uh, as a structural engineer or a facade designer or a spec writer, all of that is part of what we're able to do. So we should, just like you'd go to a, an architect in your office to say, hey, can you run these options? That's what we're there for as well. It shouldn't be these separate silos of architect consultant. It should just be designers. How does that communication process look like? I mean, 
being an embedded team may, means that you have to have some sort of access, continuous access to you and to, do you find it, like, are there specific communication channels that work really well for this type of more embedded collaboration that makes it really feel like they can come to you and ask you anything? Or, yeah, I'm just curious if there's any kind of an, an interesting technological approach to that even, just like ways in which you collaborate with people um, to make it seem almost as if you're an embedded team. For me, locally, so a lot of the projects I work on do happen to be very regional because of who I've met along the way, you know, having worked in this profession for 18 years, right? So I do have a lot of local clients. And before the pandemic occurred, I would actually go to their offices in a lot of cases and call on their teams in person directly. And I found that that gave me a lot of kind of mileage to build that kind of rapport with the different firms I was working for. And I'm really happy that I think they do, in a lot of cases, consider me to be an extension of their own team. That's my goal, right? I want to blend in and be helpful to the folks I'm working with. But now that, you know, offices are closed and visits can't really occur like they used to at the moment, I have been going on a lot of Zoom calls and video conferences which at least to me are as close to meeting in person as possible. I do have several clients that are not in my region. So obviously that was never going to happen. I'm not going to fly out necessarily every time there's a meeting for somebody that's out of state. But I think video conferencing has been a really effective tool for me to kind of connect with the people that I'm working with and alongside. And, you know, it's just sort of a mixture of, video conferences, phone calls, emails, and whatever serves the purpose at that point in time. Yeah, for us, in addition to, you know, obviously the the video access, now that I've got my shots, I'm back to traveling, which is good to be face-to-face, but technologically, COVID's taught us a ton in terms of we had been always using Bluebeam Studio. It's, uh, you know, cloud-based PDF files that we're able to simultaneously Markup and edit has always been a great tool, but now things like different, you know, kind of boards like Miro is an example of like, they're basically creating virtual pinup walls. Whereas in the old days, I'd go to one of my client's offices and I'd be expected to walk the pinup wall and mark it up and just kind of like you're doing crits in school. But, you know, I would be doing it on projects I'm not even on, just fake comments because that's kind of where our relationships have evolved. Whereas with these virtual boards, we're able to put precedent imagery up uh, sketches, working details, mark them up on the fly, on the screen. So they don't even have to be in the midst of like a Zoom meeting. It can be a little bit more on people's individual schedules. They'll see the markups on that board. And it it's really changed practice quite a bit for us where what we've been forced into through these times is really open the door to a bunch of tools that I must admit I didn't even know existed. And of course, you know, cloud BIM models, things of that nature always help as well. Yeah, I think between Bluebeam and Mira, those are the two technologies beyond Zoom or GoToMeeting or whatever we're using. Uh, that's been the best. At various complexities, I'm also wondering if there's other people that are brought on to your projects. So let's say, for example, Chris, on the side of, uh, let's say on a complicated facade, like who else from, what, what other specialists could someone, just to keep in mind, like it might be someone from your team, but what other types of consultants are typically brought on for a project in that scope? I think it's really the normal, you know, barrage of consultants, your structural engineer, mechanical engineer, civil, et cetera. And then, you know, occasionally people have the, the desire for a facade consultant, whether that is purely to 
limit liability, to supplement their technical team, or they just want to do something a little bit different. And then they bring somebody like us on. And then uh, sometimes it moves into a world where we get into different procurement methods, such as like design assist, where we're actually bringing in fabricators, erectors, things of that nature to join the team early so that we can you know, kind of evolve our design taking into account the craft of that individual fabricator. So as designers, we're often designing a building so that it's biddable. All these different shops do things subtly differently to come to the same conclusion. Each have their economic advantage on an individual project. And when we design for all of them to bid, we're usually trying to aim into the average of those various techniques. Whereas if we bring somebody on board, you know, say like at design development, we're able to get them in somewhere during that process and we're able to complete our construction documents, really tying into their means and methods into their shop. We can actually get a better system closer to our vision for a better cost and service the project better. Now, there are definitely owners and people out there who worry like, well, how am I going to get these guys to bid against each other and force their numbers down? Some projects that are simple enough, that is warranted. But when they start getting a little bit more unique and more specialized and we start using various systems as a kit of parts that we're going to assemble in a unique way, getting those guys on board can be great and really steer into the curve of who's going to be building our projects and using all that hands-on knowledge as part of our design process. Amy, do you, do you have similar parts in the spec writing process or in experiences you've had where you also have to bring in other consultants for yourself to help you in some capacity? Or is it pretty self-contained? I feel like it is specialized already. So I, I work with another spec writer, David, who I partner with on projects and we collaborate together on projects or, you know, he's working on one and working on another. So we have that kind of brain share occurring behind the scenes, right? Which is great to have another spec writer that can weigh in on what would you do? And what do you think about that detail? So that's been really great internally to have that. I would say though, for me, I rely heavily on the information provided to me by the building materials manufacturers. So I'm pretty well connected to my network of local reps. And I know that different firms and different architects have had lots of experiences, both good and bad with various reps. But for me as a spec writer, I have to rely pretty heavily on the information that they're giving me and what their systems just can and cannot do. Sometimes I'm asked about certain questions and sort of technical issues where I sort of suspect it might be a little bit beyond the reach of that particular system or material. And I have to call these manufacturers' technical engineering departments to kind of talk through what the materials capabilities are in some, in some cases. So I guess my consultants are actually the manufacturers' technical teams and internal engineering groups whenever there's something that's maybe like a one-off that would occur and warrant that kind of discussion. And I think that's a lot of the role that both Amy and, and my team play is you know, we are that kind of transition between the rest of the design team and the specialty fabricators or manufacturers and that we're able to talk to them on a more technical level than a lot of architects are able to and really get down to the nuts and bolts of why their systems work the way they are. What are the the lap lengths? What are these, you know, transition zones needing to be and like, you know, compatibility, things of that nature. That's 
that's kind of that role we we play to make sure they're getting good information. Because one of the challenges when you're only dealing with sales reps, you know, let's face it, rep is one word, but the other one's sales. They're there to sell, you know, because of what we do. We have more access to the national level technical people where we know exactly how the material is working as opposed to, you know, what that representative has been trained to tell people in terms of what their knowledge is. It's not always in that deep. I mean, the, we, we kind of get down in the weeds with the, with the scientists and stuff. And that's kind of a unique fun part about our role on the projects. You know, I always use the term like scientists invent the technology engineers manipulate and figure out how to use the technology. And oftentimes we try to use it in ways they didn't envision. And that's the kind of role we're able to do by kind of poking and prodding at these experts and figuring out how it's appropriate to the work we're doing and how we want to use it on our projects. And I think it's important too, that like just by virtue of kind of the deep dive that we're typically doing in various systems, we do have a lot of people that, well, I have a lot of reps that call on me both sales side and technical side, right? So I feel like I have a pretty good sense having worked with a lot of folks over the year, like who the people are that can answer more technical questions and weigh in on like, that installation looked great, but if you do this, it's not going to look great. So we're having these types of conversations all the time. And if there's ever any question as to how something's going to finish or you know, play out through the whole process, like those people are readily available. And, you know, there's a good chance that we know directly who to call and get a very quick and straightforward answer. So I think just knowing the people is a lot of what we bring to the table. I still have, like, I used to work in big firm settings and I still have a lot of people that very regularly kind of like ping me for like, Hey, do you have the email address of the rep that sells whatever? So, I mean, just kind of being that person that can shuffle an architect to the right counterpart is a lot of what I do too. Yeah, there's something here about, there's a couple of themes here. One is going from a world in which like for a design team going from, what is it like that that framework of you don't like, what is it? Uh, you don't know what you don't know uh, sort of thing, but like getting more clarity, right? Faster. Plus the fact, and the outcome of that too, is obviously a benefit for the design team. And I think overall, a better experience for the client, which is something where we here at Monograph, we're also super interested in. It's like, how, what are the things and practices that firms can adopt to provide a better client experience in general? So that it has a net benefit completely, right? And some of this, what you're mentioning here, being able to have access to a network of reps really quickly. It's like the value that you're providing can't just be seen necessarily through the outcome of the documentation, right? There's additional value that's being provided in just the speed. And I think that in a world of, you know, non-billable and billable hours, which this industry is really wrapped up around, you know, being aware of how speed is an actual a, a point of competitive advantage to some degree for, for different firms, even at the small scale. Because I, I also be curious just to even talk a little bit more about that uh, from your side, Amy, too. It's like, you know, we talked a little bit about earlier, like the fear that a small architecture firm might have when it comes to bringing someone of your skill set into a project. But, you know, it's likely that the framing is just a little bit off, too, in the sense that what you're getting with hiring someone like you is additional value for the client in ways that are not maybe super apparent off, off the bat. Maybe you can speak a little to that. 
sure. Yeah. I have a lot of firms that I work for that are actually small firms and I'm really excited to be able to work with them because they don't necessarily have the resources in-house to just have a full-time research person, right? In those cases in particular, I do certainly feel like an extension of their teams and I'm providing them all kinds of information behind the scenes, putting them in contact with certain manufacturers or just bringing to light issues that maybe they didn't know they needed to look at more carefully. So I think that definitely spec writing can be scalable even to a smaller size firm for a smaller size project. But the point you made about the speed, right? And the the delivery of information and kind of connecting the dots maybe quicker is a really important one because how do you put a value on that per se, if you're not like tracking every minute that you would otherwise spend doing the research yourself. So I think that that's probably a great value. And the other thing too, that could be a value added part of the spec discussion is when, let's say a firm does have strong preferences for a certain product, a certain manufacturer, and that manufacturer becomes written into the spec as like a basis of design manufacturer, right? So when that project gets awarded, it goes out to bid, it gets awarded, and maybe that manufacturer ends up winning the project, right? So the good part in these relationships that I have with my rep community is that they're likely the same person that's going to be on the job site kind of working through all of these issues. And they've been invested in it since DD, let's say. So they've kind of known the nuances of the project. They've been working with the firm. They got awarded the job and now they're kind of taking over as the eyes and the ears to make sure all of that knowledge gets carried through to construction. So I've had that. And again, I'm not sure how you place the value on that, but I do think it results in a much smoother process, especially during the construction phase when we've kind of closed the loop like that. Yeah. And I think in general, that R&D element is something that is really hard to do as a small firm, you know, when you're not those big multinational firms. And it's something that, you know, we've been able to do, obviously, similar to what Amy's describing, dealing with the rest. But as an engineering firm, one thing that's been unique for us is many of these systems need to have a delegated design and engineering to it. And uh, we've been able to provide that for some fabricators, sometimes, you know, just because I wanted to learn the, the methodologies in their systems we would offer to do a couple of projects for them and, you know, which makes our R and D actually billable, even though our core business is really working directly for architects. You know, we're not built to work for the contract. It's not really our goals. We're more designers, you know, in service of architects and, you know, to work with the top digital fabricators or start to learn the craft of a different material or system and really be able to vet that is something we have the ability to do due to the engineering side of our office. And, all that comes into play. So like when we work with, with somebody and they're like, Oh, I'm considering porcelain. And we, we have like a whole laundry list of all the different suppliers, the pros and cons capabilities, what they can do, what they can manufacture. And, you know, given that this is all what we do all the time, we're able to maintain the village, uh, the vigilance on that and really know exactly what's possible. Like, you know, especially something like glass as an example some of the glass manufacturing capabilities are changing week to week, month to month and being able to have the pulse on the major manufacturers, both domestically and internationally is something we do because we deal just with that so very often. And um, 
that's something that all that knowledge and all that research and the experience of so many different projects are able to come into play since we are able to specialize in that. For both of you, I, 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 Amy, you recommended Chris uh, to join on the call. I'm curious for both of you, what has been, where does your working relationship overlap um, and how, what does that look like? Yeah, so the, um, Chris and I have worked on several projects as consultants to an architectural office working on a few different jobs, right? So what's interesting is that we're both visitors in the process just for that project, but we each bring different perspectives to the table. And I think it's been really interesting to be able to get on these conference calls with the firms that we're working with and kind of have this knowledge share because, you know, I'm specialized in writing specs and Chris is obviously specialized in other technical things. So we have different thoughts and ideas that we're all sort of bringing to the table and we're able to discuss that with the architects so that based on that project and that application, they have the information hopefully that they need in order to make a decision to move the project forward in whatever way seems best. But I think that being able to collaborate on a more technical level with a consultant like Chris has been really great for me because a lot of times it's really common when we get into kind of like the weatherproofing layers of the building and we start talking about air barriers, roofing and waterproofing. I'll start asking these kind of nerdy technical questions and I can sort of see the deer in the headlights look like <laughs> among the folks that I'm working with sometimes. And it's not anything that people should feel embarrassed about. Like I'm specialized in that particular area. So like, if you don't necessarily know all of the ins and outs of it, that's not the point and it's okay. Right. But mm -hmm. like, it's been really cool to work with Chris because there's a good chance if it's enclosure related, they've dealt with it in a very technical way on some projects in the past. And he already knows where I'm headed with that question. So I get a very like quick response with a lot of background on his part when they're kind of weighing in on decisions um, like that that need to be made. Yeah. I and mean, thinking of like a Venn diagram is probably a good way. It's like, you know, Amy and our studio overlap in a certain area, but like the center of our circles are probably still relatively far apart. And it helps us develop a holistic look at it because, you know, Amy's looking at the products and materials and systems we're using in the whole entire building. Whereas, you know, we're usually focused on the structure and the facade. And, you know, there's all these different overlaps of, you know, how the details are coming together, the constructability, who we're going to buy it from, the fabrication, how to specify it, how to tie it to all these other systems to create this holistic thing that is a building. And having the different focused areas of expertise overlap the way we do creates a great dialogue of being able to help our architectural teams understand the options and see where they can go and help uh, the team select. Once again, I use the word appropriate, like the most appropriate thing for our project. And I, I think it just adds to the, the depth of the team. And let's face it, it allows our architects to focus on what they're best at in terms of you know, managing the client, the design, all these different things that we are able to give them this palette of options technically that we can start to choose from based on the pros and cons. So it's, it's been great. I wonder if there's a, a, another sub theme to this about delegation where 
maybe there's a lot of different hesitancies to bringing on consultants early on. Some of it has to do with the perception of price or including those budgets early on into a project, or it could be, it could be from that side. But then I feel there's this other piece about the way that architects are trained in general, right? It privileges generalization, right? You're sort of the, you have to know so much about so many things. And so there might be an, an embedded anticipation or expectation personally that you feel like you have to, Amy's point, right? The, maybe a sense of embarrassment or a sense of like, um, you know, that they should know the answer to that. When in reality, I think that we sort of need to culturally create an environment where it's okay to re- recognize that you should actually be leaning into your strengths more. Doesn't mean you should stop being a generalist. That's a beautiful part of being an architect, but at the same time, recognize what your strengths are fully and embrace that so that you can move faster. At the end of the day, like a lot of this stuff has to do, at least from my humble perspective, a lot of it has to do with, with how, uh, it, for effective projects, how fast can you make decisions? Because that's all what a project of any, of any type actually is. It's a series of decisions that have dependencies that you just need to be making. And so the faster you can delegate decisions to someone else, that has a higher confidence interval of like, oh, 90%, <laughs> there's a higher chance that Chris is going to know the answer to the structural problem than me. I should hand it off to Chris, right? The same with Amy on any kind of component part. And if there was maybe a way where like collectively that could be, I don't know, internalized by the broader architecture community or educated even, because some of this does come from school. At the end of the day, it's like what you learn at school, sort of what you adopt in your career. But I feel... I feel this is an important part of like what you, Amy, and Chris are both talking about to some degree is like there's an importance to recognize delegation as something that you have to do to manage projects effectively with with maximum success. And I'd be curious, just anecdotally, because you might not have the numbers, but I'd be curious to to know if you've seen even just like on the value engineering side. Right. Like, have you seen impacts of like not of being either being brought too late to a project that has like financial repercussions? I don't know that I would be able to pinpoint some kind of like tangible downfall that's occurred by being brought on board too late. Other than kind of like the stress factor of having to make a lot of decisions really late in the game. I think certainly there's a big benefit in bringing a technical consultant in earlier so that a lot of this shakes out before too many decisions are made that lock it in that make it impossible to kind of undo without creating all sorts of additional work. But I do think that as far as being a technical type of consultant, the name of our game is to not provide services in a way that makes people feel stupid. So like we, I, I think the very nature of what we do, we're probably both inquisitive people and we both have a ton of questions. It's probably why we landed in these technical roles in the first place. I will be the first to say when I don't know an answer and I need to kind of reach out to the network of people that maybe do have that answer. But my hope is that in collaborating with different firms that they don't feel like they should know all the answers either. And I put a lot of emphasis on trying to kind of build up that team aspect and making sure that people feel comfortable to reach out because I would hate for somebody to like not ask the question and have it result in something that maybe they didn't want, right? Because they were too embarrassed to admit they didn't know. 
But like I said, I'm the first person to say, hey, I don't know, but I will research this and I will get back to you. So I think that's kind of what we do as technical consultants. And that's the kind of like transparency that we can provide to the firms that we're working with. This is what we do, right? We ask questions, we research, and hopefully at the end of it, we come back with options that the firms that we're working with are comfortable with. And I think this came up in your Building Science Fight Club uh, webinar, and you should never feel embarrassed that you don't know the answer on the spot, on the fly, in front of a foreman on a job site. That's just, it's not necessary. I tell my team, especially the younger ones, is never feel pressured in giving an answer. There's nothing wrong with saying, I'll get back to you. And, you know, I was told very early on in my career that, you know, as an engineer, my role is not to have the answer. My role is to know where to find the answer. And that answer may be in a person, it may be in a book, it may be in a code document, it may require analysis. The answer to any individual problem doesn't need to be this immediate knee jerk. And the world of construction has gotten so much more complicated than the Renaissance days of the architect as master builder, where this idealized thing, there's this one person who has all this knowledge and ability to tell everybody how to build something. Our systems have gotten so complex and integrated in how they work and how they function that it's created a need for a, a level of expertise and specialization. And, you know, the role of the architect on the project has evolved into how do I manage all this expertise? How do I manage all this knowledge to come out with the best product for my client, my owner? And, you know, they're kind of occasionally hurting the cats that Amy and I are to get what they want out of the design. The earlier we come in, the easier it is to do. The more there's communication, the easier it is to do. Whereas oftentimes you can paint yourself in a corner if we're coming in at like 50% CDs. There's a lot of decisions that have been made that cannot be walked back, cannot be evolved. And some of the solutions are going to be more like Band-Aids than this holistic building solution that we ideally want on our projects. That uh, master builder reference reminds me of reading... uh the book on uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Part of the book talks about how he just made shit up in his drawings because he was actually more a consummate salesperson than he was anything else. And so he would just flaunt services as if like, oh, I can do military. I can do, yeah, military weaponry. Oh, I know how to do that. Like, you know, so it's all, you know, it's funny how even that story of the master builder gets sort of retold over time. When in reality, I'm sure there was all this like, they don't know what they're doing. You know, Vitruvius is freaking out on a job site because, <laughs> you know, make commitments, overextended themselves. So it's like, it's probably the reality is really close to, has not changed at all since, since those days. Um, so I want to transition a bit to uh, questions from uh, the audience. And we already have a couple lined up from Chris through his Instagram. So I'd love to, maybe this is a, this is a pretty interesting question in general. It's like, what's, it's been crazy, right? 2020, 2021, things have just like flipped upside down in some regards. Lumber is like, I think I saw the pricing index for the, the futures index for lumber was out of this world. Heard some sort of, in some interview that it might be like 10 years before lumber gets to normal, just because of all the kind of shocks to the system. What in general have been some of the trends that you're seeing now in the past year with COVID and everything else where are we headed? Maybe not in the next 10 years, but at least in the short term, what are the things that are top of mind for both of you? I think the impacts on construction schedule and obtaining materials are going to 
continue to be a challenge. And I'm starting to see requests to break out early bid packages for structural items so that like long lead time, like steel in particular, long lead time items might need to be sort of settled and purchased even before the building is fully designed. So I think we're going to continue to deal with that kind of trend when those things kind of affect the construction schedule. But longer term, it's hard to say. I think at some point things will start to feel more normal, but certainly in the short term, the bid packages are being broken up into smaller chunks so that materials are purchased in time to keep moving with construction. Yeah, I think to build on the the schedule thing, we see this a lot because you know we work on the structure as well, and you know, understanding that an early structural package means we're making decisions on the whole building, not just structure, much much earlier. Otherwise, you know, it gets to the point where mechanically it becomes a renovation project instead of a new construction. It right. accelerates all decisions, all processes. It's like, yeah, we can pick colors and maybe a finished material to a degree later. But in terms of systems and, you know, how this building is going to go together, wall sections and things of that nature, we're developing those so much more rapidly. And clients have become, you know, more demanding. I remember, you know, at the recession back like 2008, I felt like the owners were asking the design teams to move even faster because they could. You know, it's just like, hey, if you won't do it, I'll go to somebody who will. Everybody's in demand. And now it's kind of flipped to be about procurement, as Amy brought up. It's we're trying to lock in the prices as soon as possible because you know a lot of these people are bidding jobs and they won't hold their bid for more than a day or two. You know, the whole vetting of bids just doesn't happen that fast because the commodity prices are changing so frequently. You know, even steel just jumped significantly. I think somebody was saying a, a factor of three on the material, so it's really gotten a little bit out of control. And, you know, especially building in the U.S., one of the things that I've always found interesting is that material is so much cheaper than labor in the U.S. that they tend to throw material at problems. And if these trends of material costs are going to go up, you're going to start seeing these more elegant, more efficient designs become in vogue again. Because let's face it, labor is way more renewable than any of our raw materials, even timber. So, as we start looking at this, these are the kind of trends that are going to start to affect us. And, you know, um, from my perspective, I think looking at the environment is a big thing in terms of embodied carbon as we look to the future of what we're worried about, which kind of puts us into that higher labor, lower material um, palette of designing systems and way of looking at things. Um, like even just something as simple as mass timber, the demand of mass timber has gotten so difficult to uh, procure on small and medium-sized projects due to, you know, the trend of like everybody wants to be carbon neutral, which is fantastic. Awesome. That's exactly what I want, except for the fact that our our material suppliers and our product stream isn't ready for it yet. And then you're going to see that on the operational carbon side too, is ASHRAE 90.1 is going to be getting stricter and stricter and stricter. Our thermal envelopes, our air barriers, how we're controlling our systems is going to become uh, more critical and we're going to have to be more technically savvy in how we put our buildings together and it's all happening at once um there's also a lot of excitement in material science of what products can do um polymer-based products that are thermally inert that we can use structurally to eliminate thermal bridges there's a lot of excitement out there as much as some of the doom and gloom economically that we see in the cost of commodities 
thanks for, for that answer, both of you. Um, question for, I have some additional questions from the audience uh, for Amy. Do you feel that you need to, or that you do compete with manufacturer reps since they provide similar services to you? What's the overlap there between you and, and manufacturing reps? I don't, I don't feel like I compete at all. I think that there are certainly manufacturers that will offer spec rating services to firms and they'll obviously kind of bake their materials in as a proprietary spec, most likely. Sometimes they will include their competitors, but certainly they're issuing something that's usually proprietary or maybe a basis of design spec. So the thing is, though, is they're not really necessarily looking at it as a whole. Like all of these materials are going to touch and interface with other materials. So while their proprietary spec is going to be exactly what they want it to be, they're not really concerned with how it fits together with the whole project necessarily. You know, and that's kind of a broad generalization. There are certain manufacturers that are more concerned about tie-ins and things like that than others. But I think the benefit in having a independent or even internal spec writer is that we're constantly looking at this whole project manual from a global perspective, right? And I'm not so concerned about taking care of a specific proprietary manufacturer's needs like they are. I'm more concerned with how this piece of the puzzle fits together with respect to the whole. So I think that, you know, manufacturers are valuable resources. They are certainly huge resources for me and I can't do my job without them. But when architects do get a manufacturer's guide spec, you just want to make sure that you're sort of weaving that into the project in a way that makes sense for the whole. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Um, We have a couple more questions. And I think we can uh, wrap up. So we have uh, Dory's asking, is there a minimum project size that makes sense to bring on a spec consultant? That is a great question. I have written specs as a consultant for projects that are maybe just interiors only. And maybe it's just like a commercial office build out of a few thousand square feet. And the conversation I usually have when somebody pings me for a proposal for a project like that is what kind of spec deliverable are you comfortable with and what are your needs in terms of the spec deliverables? Because I think that for a smaller project, my assumption is that they're not necessarily looking for a gigantic 2000 page project manual, but it's a fair question. It's asked every time. And I think I can assist with smaller scale projects in kind of carrying down the deliverable to a level that the architects are comfortable with. And what I typically do is I can send them examples so that they can see kind of like full-blown version versus pared down version. And really it's up to them where they want to land with regards to the spec deliverable. Yeah. As a non-spec writer, you always need good specs. Always. (laughs) I mean, they, they're covering all your quality control and standards beyond just pointing on a drawing saying, this is what I want. It, I, I've seen so many projects with bad specs go badly. Um, so I, I'm more shooting Amy's horn on that, but it's, I think it's critical to a good, every good project. Yeah. And I mean, 
as a sidebar to that, I still practice architecture as an individual. Obviously, the projects that I take on are quite small. So I still have spec deliverables in my own projects where I'm the architect. But it's a decision that everybody has to kind of like arrive at with good information in order to be able to make that decision. But I would never go in and kind of recommend like for a a commercial project that notes on drawings are a safe place to stop with that. Obviously, a full-blown project manual is going to be kind of your safest option. But in reality, there's ways to kind of adapt that down to a smaller project where I think it does provide kind of a safety net that people are looking for without having to have a 2,000-page document for a 2,000-square-foot project, maybe. But, you know, in, in all honesty, that is most certainly the safest deliverable is the 2,000-page stuff book. But understandably, not everybody is invested in that level of specifying. So, One more question I can get to, which is my closing, my closing question. Great question about influence on sustainable products and materials and whether you have any influence on that or have, have, have had any influence. But unfortunately, we're, we're out of time. So my last question is, um, what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? Ooh, that is a good question. I think I'll answer that kind of from a professional standpoint. So professionally, I think the, the kindest thing that others have done for me would be um, to kind of reassure me that my path knowing that it's not really one that's followed kind of that prescribed, like, here's how you work up the ranks in a firm kind of way. I've, I've often resisted that traditional moving up the ranks path because it just didn't feel right for me. So I think the kindest thing that people have done for me professionally would be to just reassure me that it's okay if you don't fit into that box for whatever people think success might be. And also, you know, second to that, reassure me that I have the tools and resources I need to be successful, even though I don't maybe fit into that kind of standard path. Yeah, I think I'm going to stay professional, too, just to keep it from getting overly emotional. Architects have really kind of embraced us as part of their team and, you know, where it's it's more than just, oh, let's call on this project. We're we're talking about our lives and our families. We're in the whole process, the whole way of always just integrating together. So instead of having like my office, I have dozens of offices. It feels like that, you know, I walk in and it's like family. It's been really neat. The teams that let us be that influence and allow us to be that much a part of their team and their projects that they're so emotional about um, as they should be because we are. Yeah, I, I think that's just, that embrace we get from some of the people who, in my opinion, use us the right way. So with that, uh, I'll just finish off with the closing uh, little blurb about Monograph, company that I work at here and the one that's hosting this. So at Monograph, we're building the future of practice operations and back office management for small to medium-sized firms. Monograph is designed for architects, by architects. I myself have a background in landscape architecture and architecture. Who uses Monograph? Firm owners, operation leaders, project managers, and office managers all use Monograph to track the fee health and staffing across projects and phases. You can start a free trial today at monograph.io or watch a live demo 
tomorrow with Robert, our CEO. You can just go to the website and be able to register for that. Um, and yeah, thank you all for joining. Amy, Chris, thanks so much for joining. This has been a great conversation about integrated consulting. Really appreciate your time. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. Yeah. And if for anyone, sorry, just last Monday, if anyone that wants to contact you for any follow-up questions, how can they do so? Uh, I can drop my email address into the chat for whoever wants to reach out with questions. I'm always available just to chat about the process of writing specs if anybody has any questions. Cool. Thanks so much for that. And I did the same in the chat. Uh, I must admit, I directed it specifically at the person who had the sustainability question we didn't answer because... It is not clear. That's um, definitely something I'm pretty passionate about. I'd love to talk to anybody about that or really anything design. So uh, my email is the easiest way to find me, our website, which can easily be derived from my email address. Uh, you can find me via phone that way if you're more comfortable that way. But please don't hesitate to reach out. We love talking about this stuff. Amazing. Thank you both. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you, you too. Cheers. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.